Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. My freak's here, but it's a little bit mellow tonight, maybe a little more than normal, because it is getting kind of late, and I'm drinking some relaxing kava tea. Yeah, wow, but uh, you Bought from (laughs) stuff.sexandscienceour.com. The woo's usually my line, but all right, let's... uh, It's rubbing off on me after four years of you doing your own show, where you open it up that way every week. (laughs) That's the trick. You know, you be yourself long enough, and eventually people start start to like it, or they just, I don't know, they accept it, whatever. Well, I like it. I like you, Brian. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Very much so. And I'm Stephanie. You're Brian. This is Sex and Science Hour. It's Friday. Happy Friday. And uh, you're listening to our show, which comes out every week. And you can find our website at sexandsciencehour.com. Now, this week, um, I think we're going to talk about something that's one of your pet topics, Brian. Your favorite, really? Your favorite topic. Yes. That would be the Internet of shit. Oh, I mean the Internet of things. <laughs> the Internet of things. All these things that are connected to the Internet and these smart devices. We're going to start off the show with a segment that we usually save for the third uh, the third segment, and we call it Smart Dumb. And it's about a new technology that's just a fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in this case, of course, we're talking about what's been in the news this week. Uh, the Samsung washing machines, the exploding washing machines. Samsung is in shambles, says uh, the next web, as it recalls 2.8 million, 2.8 million glitchy washing machines. Samsung just can't catch a break and things keep getting worse, the article says. The company has recalled 2.8 million top-loading washing machines following reports that the devices are falling apart during use. And it's not just as simple as falling apart. The Consumer Product Safety Commission issued the recall announcement today, warning owners that the machine could, quote, pose a risk of injury. (laughs) Here's what the CPSC said. The washing machine top can unexpectedly detach from the washing machine chases during use or chassis during use. This recall involves 34 models of Samsung top load washing machines. The washing machines have mid controls or rear controls. Model numbers and information can be found on two labels affixed to the back of the machine. Consumers should check with Samsung to see if their washer is recalled. According to the CPSC, the South Korean giant has so far registered 733 reports of washing machines experiencing excessive vibration or the top detaching from the washing machine. Nine of these incidents have resulted in injuries, including a broken jaw, injured shoulder, and impact or fall-related traumas. All right, now, see, that's where it matters. Did something actually happen? I mean, a lot of times, this sort of thing, I mean, product recalls have happened for 
as long as there have been products, uh, you know, frankly, like I remember a Battlestar Galactica toy from the seventies, not that I was alive, but, um, you know, like it had this front nozzle that would shoot out a little missile, never even did that in the show, but whatever, they made it do that way. And it's like, Oh, this could be a choking hazard. And it's debatable if anybody actually even choked, like there's cases that were brought up, but the evidence behind it is, is kind of scant mm -hmm. so you know it's very important did this actually happen not that i'm defending samsung in any way at uh, the same time it's like it, it's almost like you know you don't want an accident waiting to happen you don't want to wait until something hurts somebody to take action on recalling it no, right absolutely right but i think you know it helps or not helps. It's unfortunate when it happens, but it helps when you hear, Oh, wait a second. Somebody broke their jaw or somebody did, you know, something else happened. Mm -hmm, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, was there more? Well, it said earlier this year, the tech giant faced a class action lawsuit following a litany of consumer complaints about exploding washing machines. And then of course Boom. there's the galaxy at note seven, um, that, you know, you can't take them on a plane anymore because they could blow up. Well, that's a situation that's getting out of hand, too, because now it was they were just recalling a certain model. Now Samsung is just pretty much thrown in the towel and they said, no, you need to return all Note 7s. And they are sending out a firmware update to every single Galaxy Note 7 that won't let it charge beyond 60%. Oh, my and God. And continues to give you a like a nagging notification whenever you power it on or lock it or ever saying, you need to return your phone. You need to return your phone. Wow. And there's not much you can do about this. I mean, you can ignore it and you can be like, oh, well, I'm just happy donkey dory with my note seven. Well, okay, fine. But, <laughs> you know. Happy donkey dory. Yeah, w whatever. I, I mean, but the bottom line is, is that, I mean, that, that gets into another story of like, oh, wait, they can just force firmware on you that can totally change the operation of your phone. Yeah, there's all kinds of issues here at play. But right. um, why are so many of their devices exploding? Do you think this is like corporate espionage where somebody like snuck in and got a job and like fucked up their their items? <sighs> well, OK, so so industrial espionage, corporate espionage. Like this is something there's certain time frames and there's certain companies where it's very well documented. There's other places. It's not well documented at all. So a lot of times you're running off of a lot of speculation and you're running off of sort of maybe the implications of something happening at this scale. Um, and you know, when you have this issue with washing machines, there was an issue with refrigerators last year. You have the note seven, what was happening with the refrigerators? Uh, refrigerators. Refrigerators. Did I say refrigerators? No, I said refrigerators. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember the exact story, but I, I think like some of the drawers, their sensors were going out and there were some other issues. But bottom line being is that this seems so broad. It's kind of, and, and Samsung works on so many different things and they outsource to so many different companies. I, I don't know. It's hard not to believe that this wasn't something pervasive throughout the company uh, yeah that yeah. it wasn't planned that this wasn't some part of a like a strategy of you know sabo sabotage yeah uh it, it's it's really hard not to believe that and for it good seems reason like that especially like when things are exploding i can see things breaking down and you know just the quality getting lowering mm -hmm. but when things are actually becoming a hazard that's when it starts to raise an eyebrow to me because i don't think these people are idiots who run a billion multi-billion dollar company like samsung you know well right i mean and that's kind of the odd thing is that samsung in many ways still exists because it's known for for some pretty good quality here and there yeah yeah uh, i mean even like you know right down to their hard drives are considered some of the best in the world i mean they they 
push entire categories and they do so with great products. So yeah, I, I kind of feel, and you know, it makes sense. Not that I can understand like say why, and I have no evidence for this, not that I can understand why Apple say would want to, uh, you know, ruin their washing machines other than to just like ruin faith in the company across the board. But would Apple want to take out the note line on the, you know, on the eve of quarters where notes or where Galaxy phones are outselling iPhones? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, they do that in RP. Well, maybe Apple's going to come out with the Apple washing machine sometime. Oh. It's going to cost like $5,000 and be gold plated. and <laughs> <laughs> It'll be the greatest innovation the ever. Apple. It'll actually wash your clothes. No other washing machine has ever done that before, before Apple did it. You've heard of the Apple Watch. Now we got the Apple Wash. <laughs> this is Sex and Science. It's hour. There's more coming up. I love a good corporate conspiracy, don't you? <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is the promo break where we promote something and try to get it into the time frame of exactly one minute. Brian, you have a podcast that's called Sovereign Tech, right? Yeah, I'll tell you. And this is, you know, this is a great advertisement had, for Sovereign yeah, Tech. Because you've got this smart future everybody keeps talking about. Well, let me tell you something. The smart future is fucking stupid. And the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, that's me, the host of Sovereign Tech. That's you. I, I've been telling you about it for years that it was stupid and I'm not the only one. And if you want to hear about more of this stuff, if you want to know months, if not years ahead of time, you want to listen to Sovereign Tech. SovereignTech.com is where you want to check it out. Yep. And you have subscriber-only content on your Patreon.com slash Sovereign Tech. Well, just go or to SovereignTech.com. That'll take you right to the Patreon. We actually did a very popular episode of uh, subscriber-only content about, uh, <laughs> well, the lack of diversity within certain subcultures, didn't we? And it oh, got yeah. a very good response, but you'll only be able to hear it at SovereignTech.com. <laughs> This is Sex and Science Hour. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Um, and now this is anything but. I, I came across this article, I don't know, somewhere on the internet. Um, it was actually a friend, MK Lords, uh, producer of the show, by the way. And we're going to credit her again later because she uh, actually was responsible for another item of show prep Oh, here. fantastic. She's wonderful. But she sent me an article about something else. And then on the previews of like suggested, you might like this article too. I found this next item that we're going to talk about right now. This is from Atlas Obscura. And it's called, the, the title is, The First Woman to Put Her Face on Packaging Got Trolled Like Crazy. Now, this is very interesting by Kara uh, Giamo. As every single person on the Internet knows, women who dare to enter the public eye are regularly pilloried. Message boards are rife with misogyny. Trolls lurk under every tweet. Don't read the comments has become a necessary mantra. But as the 19th century apothecary Lydia E. Pinkham might attest, none of this is particularly modern. In the late 1800s, Pinkham's face became among the most recognizable in the world, and this only and this brought consequences. Until she came along, the only woman whose image showed up regularly in public was Queen Victoria. When Pinkham first put herself on a bottle of her best-selling vegetable concoction, men sent her hate mail, harping on her haircut and her cast and her quote cast iron smile. Journalists mix her up with other famous women college choirs made fun of her in songs, all because she dared to put her portrait on a label. 
Before becoming a well-known medicine maven, Pinkham had led a relatively quiet life. She was a schoolteacher, mother, and dedicated abolitionist in her hometown of Lynn, Massachusetts. Did they say what, what year this was again? Yeah, this I mean, is I'm guessing the, 19th century? The late 1800s, yep. Yeah, okay. All so, right. And actually, we just talked on our last show about uh, Young's ideal rectal dilators, <laughs> the butt plugs that were supposed to cure headaches. Well, this is around the same time when there was a lot of... This is the before the days of the FDA when there was unregulated medical devices and medical, um, you know, drugs and stuff like that. Right. And, uh, you know, you could pretty much slap anything into a bottle and put your face on it and sell it. And if people bought it, then maybe they got suckered. Yeah, uh, well... <laughs> And maybe they're still getting suckered if they buy things, but at least, you know, now it's a little more precise than vegetable concoction. So in some <laughs> cases, I don't know. I'm not like making a case for the FDA. But anyway, um, this is in those the days when there were lots of these things. There sure. were lots of these tinctures and there were lots of like, you know, little things that were supposed to cure like vague ailments. So anyway, and this was in America. This was in Massachusetts. Yep. Okay. In America. Just wanted to be clear on that. Before becoming a well-known medicine maven, Pinkham had led a relatively quiet life. She was a schoolteacher, mother, and dedicated abolitionist in her hometown of Lynn, Massachusetts. She got into preparing medicines at the age of 56 through knack and necessity. The economy was tanking, her family needed money, and she happened to have a great recipe for a much-needed drug. 19th century pharmacies were full of pat patent medicines. Mixtures, which, though dodgy by modern standards, helped citizens through illnesses and complaints, often by slyly dosing them with cocaine or opium. Pinkham had spent years concocting a menstrual cramp-soothing mixture that all the neighborhood women swore by. In 1875, hoping local appeal would translate, she brewed up some of the first commercial batch of her, quote, vegetable compound, some roots, some seeds, and a generous amount of alcohol, all stirred together on the stove. The bitter brown sludge didn't look or taste like much, but it hit the spot for a number of women with nowhere else to turn. As Sarah Stage explains in Female Complaints, science during that time had all sorts of hysterical ideas about the female reproductive system, and doctors, quote, frequently overtreated and maltreated the uterus, sometimes going as far as to preemptively remove a woman's ovaries to save her from the ravages of menstruation. Fearing such drastic measures, patients were often reluctant to discuss even basic aches and pains with their doctors. Yeah, no way. No shit. <laughs> In this climate, Pinkham's medicine, made for and by women and billed as, quote, a sure cure without the knife, flew off the shelves. To help it along, Pinkham offered up her services as a kind of medically-minded Dear Abby, inviting customers to write in describing their ailments, for which she would prescribe, of course, more vegetable compound. <laughs> they would write back with effusive thanks. Meanwhile, her sons Will and Dan turned themselves into a two-man marketing team, converting Lydia's advice and customers' testimonials into flyers, pamphlets, and newspaper ads. A few years into the venture, hoping to expand the business's reach even more, Dan decided to add something new to the vegetable compound bottle, a picture of Lydia. Her wise, kind face would help make her product even more relatable, the Pinkham family thought. In 1879, they commissioned a portrait and rolled out a new campaign with Lydia front and center. This wasn't just new for the company, it was new for the world. In the 19th century, a woman offering her image for circulation in the public sphere was almost unheard of, writes Elizabeth Lowry in uh, Eponymous Elixirs, which I guess is her book. While entrepreneurial men used their own faces to advertise cough drops and Wild West shows, women shown in ads were generally generic consumers, shown smoking cigarettes or reducing their chins. 
Mrs. Pinkham's use for her own image of Mrs. Pinkham's use of her own image for circulation was considered extremely unladylike, Lowry writes. Nevertheless, the Pinkhams leaned hard on their new tactic, shipping giant lithographs of Lydia to drugstore owners and printing small ones on collectible cards which they were attaching to advertisements. Soon their founder's face was gazing out from jar labels, newspapers, and the windows of well-trafficked streets. According to Sammy R. Dana's Lydia Pinkham, the face that launched a thousand ads, the picture was painted on walls and poster-bordered on fences and even infiltrated people's homes. One newspaper reported that the company sent, quote, large mounted portraits of Mrs. Pinkham to, quote, various lady correspondents. Soon, many household walls were adorned by the familiar motherly face of the Massachusetts women, woman who had done so much for all women, the article read. And they have a picture of her. She's very stern. She looks very puritanical. Yeah. <laughs> she looks like an old kind of grandmotherly lady, you know, Massachusetts, sure. with like a high collar and... And it says, put this in your album. (laughs) The response was immediate and double-edged. The portrait took on a life of its own, writes Dana. Some confused newspapers began using Mrs. Pinkham's face to stand in for other famous women, including Susan B. Anthony and, quote, a few president's (laughs) wives. (laughs) One legend holds that late one night, the Boston Herald's layout guy got drunk and pasted a picture of Lydia on top of every single column in the paper. (laughs) Other responses were overtly hostile. Men took advantage of the Pinkham's request for testimonials to send letters telling Lydia to change her hair or stop smiling so much. This note, sent in 1880, sums up the most common complaints. Madame, if it is necessary that you should parade your portrait in every county paper in the United States, can't you in mercy to the nation have at least one new one taken once in a while? Do your hair a little differently, say. Have a differential turn of your head and look solemn. Anything to get rid of that cast-iron smile. You ought to feel solemn in any way that your face pervades the mind of the nation like a nightmare, and that you have become a bugbear to innocent children. Also, that portrait is destroying the circulation of the newspapers. I have stopped my county paper to get rid of it, and I know several flourishing papers that have been absolutely killed by it. I think my words express the heartfelt desire of a long-suffering people, and that I am sustained in this request by the strongest public sentiment ever brought to bear on any subject. Yours, T.G. Scott. (laughs) He was a grump. And a troll. (laughs) By the mid-1880s, there was a popular college choir song making fun of Lydia. And here are the lyrics to the song. There's a face that haunts me ever. There are eyes mine always meet as I read the morning paper as I walk the crowded street, it began. Sing, oh, sing of Lydia Pinkham and her love for the human race, how she sells her vegetable compound and the papers publish her face. (laughs) despite this rash of and then they have a political cartoon here with the uh it looks like the one of the bridges in new york like the major bridges that has a sign saying lydia e pinkham's vegetable compound hanging off of the bridge (laughs) despite this rash of critical men actual vegetable compound sales went through the roof that's what usually happens when you get publicity. You get trolls yeah. and you, you also get sales. Customers, yeah. <laughs> By the end of the 19th century, Pinkham was, quote, the best known woman in America, Life magazine wrote decades later. After Lydia's death in 1883, her relatives kept her portrait on company materials and customers continued to write her for advice. The Pinkhams, who couldn't afford to lose Lydia's promotional power, hired other old wise women to answer the letters. <laughs> 
1904, as part of an expose titled, quote, How the Private Confidences of Women Are Laughed At, the Ladies' Home Journal published an updated Pinkham portrait, a portrait of her 20-year-old tombstone. <laughs> But even that didn't really affect sales. In, in 1949, the company was selling 3 million bottles a year. The original Lydia Pinkham Medicine Company factory in Lynn didn't close shop until 1973. That's impressive. That's fucking impressive. These days, thanks to some these days, thanks to some trademark transfers, you can still buy Pinkham branded compounds and supplements. Lydia's portrait, slightly simplified over the decades, continues to gaze calmly out of the packaging. Were Lydia herself around to answer letters, she might have to reconsider her medicinal formula, but she would also have earned she would also have at least one well earned, timeless piece of advice to offer. Never mind the haters. <laughs> <laughs> How cute was that? That is cute. I really like that. Um I like I kinda wanna say to some degree in defense of the people at the time. All right. Now yes. granted it's ironic because of course women are you know they're objectified today like like they're in almost advertising in advertising yeah. like it's almost used to their detriment now as compared to really the the very forward thinking uh that that what was it pinkham yeah lydia pinkham, pinkham yeah. yeah had um but the thing is is that you know i mean back then people were really against advertising like in many ways just like when the internet first started in the 90s people were like don't you dare put advertising on this because people are skeptical of that you know kind of naturally um but also you know, we are talking about 19th century America, not too far removed from, you know, the queen, okay, of England, <laughs> yeah. you know uh -huh. what I mean? Or from, from the monarchy, where her face is put on fucking everything, Yeah, you know? And so, like, you know, having a woman's face put on stuff, you know, might rub people the wrong way. Now, I, I think it's wonderful that she did it. I think it's a great idea. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there are some understandable mindsets, you know, at play. I think that, uh -huh. that's more than just hating women, though certainly, you know, wanting to keep women in their place, quote unquote, was definitely a huge part of this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting, like that she got hate mail and stuff like that. Sure. But they were, you know, they you could say, I guess they were because it was her sons who decided to put the picture of her on it. Like sure. she, she didn't really have much to do with it, I guess. And also, I mean, she was helping with marketing by answering these letters and giving advice and stuff. But um, it was her sons that made the decision. And also, uh, they you could say that they were kind of objectifying her because she has this grandmotherly kind of look. So, I mean, you could say that they were kind of just using her face to to push an image. Sure. It's right? great. It's great marketing. You know, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, again, I mean, I think, you know, it kind of, this whole story sort of paints it. And like I said, there's a lot of truth to that, that this was about, I mean, there's probably a good reason she was used in place of Susan B. Anthony because it's such a recognizable woman's face. Right. Um, but you know, I get it. There were, they, they didn't like the idea of a woman, you know, kind of putting herself out there like that. But at the same time, like I said, you know, this is just when maybe when Queen Elizabeth was just starting to put her visage onto, you know, uh, uh, you know, money and all this different stuff. And that was becoming a thing. I, I just I, I could see where it would be seen as un-American, you know, to to be flashing around, you know, kind of a woman's face on on, say, the Brooklyn Bridge or even though that was a joke. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, it was in all these newspapers. Yeah. Not that I care about whatever anything American is. I'm just saying that I, I could kind of get it. Just just taking a little bit of a contrarian look at that. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I just thought it was a really entertaining story. I think it is. It's great. I'm glad she did it. Yeah. Uh, she's clearly paved the way for a lot of uh, more faces on advertising. She might have women. started the whole cameo movement in the 19th century. Yeah, you know, the, the, the portrait really looks like a cameo. Yeah, yeah. It really does. Good so for There her. you go. A little piece of history there. This is Sex and Science Hour. More coming up.
Hello, my name is Stephanie Murphy, and I'm an audiobook narrator. And you are wonderful. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I do, I'm a voice actor, and um, I do some other stuff besides just audiobooks, but I want to draw your attention to one in particular, because this is Sex and Science Hour. Um, if you go on audible.com and you search for my name, Stephanie Murphy, a book will come up called Ending Aging, the rejuvenation breakthroughs that will uh, end aging in our lifetime or something like that. I love like this that. book. Yes, and it's by Aubrey de Grey and Michael Ray. Uh, they have they are in charge of the of SENS Research Foundation, which is a human life extension foundation and the whole book is about strategies to end aging like just like the title says how can we actually like cheat death not cheat it but like avoid it yeah <laughs> by end fixing it. the damage that occurs to our bodies as we age and hopefully get rid of a lot of like disability and sickness as well and um it's actually not an impossible idea there are some people very smart people who have ideas about how we could potentially do this and there's a 20-hour audiobook out there narrated by me where you can learn more about it so Ending Aging um, on Audible.com, narrated by me, Stephanie Murphy, by Aubrey de Grey and Michael Ray. This is Sex and Science Hour. Hello, lovelies. Okay, our third segment is going to be our longest one because we've got important business to get to. The first one is an email. We have a listener email that we've been sitting on for a couple of weeks. Actually, we've been sitting on it for more than a couple of weeks. So I really hope it's still relevant. And apologies to the person who sent this because they sent it quite a while ago. Now, just to recap, last season, on our last show of the season, we got a, a listener email from a, a beautiful young woman who uh, basically was having a lot of trouble and distress because she had a sort of a last straw happen to her. Mm -hmm. She had casually had an acquaintance who she was in an improv comedy group with, and it was an older man. And, you know, she just thought, okay, he's in my improv group, no big deal. But a series of events happened, and he basically sent her this long email professing his undying love to her and saying how she, she should leave her boyfriend and and be with him. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, she was very disturbed by this. She was not expecting this to happen. She didn't want it to happen, and she it was very awkward for her. Um so we talked about that question. You can listen to episode 25 of Sex and Science Hour Season 2 if you want to hear what we said to her. But we actually got an email from her boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're not going to name either one of them, but um, it, he, he wrote and he's, he's her boyfriend and that's relevant to his question. So now we're going to talk about his email. Hey, guys, he says, great job addressing my girlfriend's email. She's been really upset about this whole thing, and I'm sure she really appreciated your thoughts. I'm very happy that I'm not the picture that the dude who professed his love in the email painted of me, as my girlfriend felt comfortable sharing everything with me. She was very happy with the way I handled it, which made us both feel great in this ungreat scenario. As bad as she made his manifesto sound, I assure you it was much worse. Anyway, I have a question for you that you can feel free to answer on your show if you like. How can I be the best boyfriend and friend to my girlfriend through difficult situations like this? I'm sure this won't be the last time this happens to her. I'd like to be there to make this crap as easy as possible for her to deal with. Obviously, jealous rage is a bad tactic that I hope is something I don't ever sink to. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, um, I I agree, jealous rage is not the way to go <laughs> to go about it. But you didn't, so congratulations on that. I mean, I think just just the fact that you sent us this email and you're like thinking about and wondering about ways to support your girlfriend through difficult situations that's is huge. yeah that's that counts for a huge amount because you're you're curious about it right and i mean 
I think it's kind of like supporting anyone through any difficult situation. It almost doesn't matter what you say in particular. What matters most is that you're present there with them and that they can tell that you support them and you care about them. Do you agree with that, Brian? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's... Go ahead. He, well, I was sorry. I, you can go ahead. Um, I no, just no. wanted to say, like, because the reason I say that is because so many times when there's a difficult situation that, like, you find out your friend tells you, oh, my gosh, my mom has cancer or something. Or, you know, your friend tells you, oh, like, you know, I just got fired from my job. You don't necessarily know exactly what to say. And sometimes it can be hard to find the words, especially when it's a terrible tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. Like when it's just so unspeakably bad, like someone's child dies or some, you know, something bad like that. It's like you don't you don't have the words to express how how horrible you think this is, you know, and how bad how much empathy you feel for them. So it's not necessarily about finding the right words, but really anything you say that is supportive and that shows that you're there and you're thinking of them and that you're empathizing with them and feeling what they feel uh, right along with them helps. Anything helps. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely. Um, I mean, the main thing, you know, this is, this goes true for a lot of conversations, not even for situations like this, but it's, it's double important. I think in these kinds of situations is that if somebody starts off a sentence with, I need your advice on something. Okay. They're looking for an answer. Now caveat, if they say, I need your advice on something and then they tell you what they want to do, they're really wanting you to confirm what they already want to do. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair code interpretation. Yeah. Okay. But that's the caveat for that. All right. Now, if they do not start it off with, I want your advice or something along those lines, they really just want you to listen. Yeah. That's a great one. You Mm -hmm. don't have to, you really don't have to like, you know, the best thing you can say to them is repeat to them in your own words what they shared with you. And that way they know you're listening and that you're empathizing and that you, because it's coming out in your own words, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're understanding their feelings and what they're going through. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually something I think we should maybe talk a little bit more about because it might feel awkward to do that. We don't normally tend to do that in our culture. When someone tells you, hey, I have this problem, usually people either launch right into problem solving mode right because you feel bad for them They're like oh i see you have a problem let me think of a solution for you and suggest it to you yeah let me give you some advice but like you said brian often people don't really want advice they want they just want to be listened to yeah which is why it was important that i say you know okay these are the markers of when someone wants your help mm-hmm. or your advice or you know wants your opinion yeah and how do you show them that that you're listening to them when they want to be listened to mm-hmm. well the way you show them is by active listening techniques. So not just like sitting there and nodding your head or just silently sitting there and listening, literally listening to what they're saying and doing nothing else, but saying, oh, so like restating, paraphrasing back to them what they just said. Yes. She says, oh my God, this guy sent me an email. He professed his love. Wait a minute. So you're saying that you got this email from him and it said, what did it say? You know, like, so, you you know, you kind of ask them questions about it, clarifying questions. You, you nod, you make noises, say, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Like, I mean, not overly so that it's annoying. I'm sure you know how to do this, but, yeah. you know, just something to show that you're still engaged, right? And look, look directly at her eye contact, right? And then, um, you know, if you hear her articulating a feeling, you can even name the feeling. That's like kind of bonus points, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, another part of the listening, I think, comes down to asking questions. Um, and there are, you know, 
I really think there are phrases that are actually more powerful than I love you. I know that's hard to believe, um, but I, I really do. I think there, there are three, there are three word phrases as well. I think phrases like tell me more, mm, let tell me, me more, let me help. Mm-hmm. Um, or four word phrases like, how do you feel? You know, how are you feeling? How about I hear that? Yeah. Or even I hear that, that I you're hear feeling that. really frustrated about this. Ble- I can see that you're really upset. Sure. You know, uh, that's what I meant about articulating feelings. Like if yeah. she says, oh, my God, I cannot believe this guy said I had hot tits or something. Right. And and you you hear that and you say, OK, it sounds like she's feeling really pissed about this. So you say, yeah, like you look like you're pissed off about that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then she says, yeah, I am pissed off. Right. And then so you just you made a connection with her. You successfully got what she was saying that how she was saying she felt and now she feels like you heard her you really heard her yes yeah so asking questions listening responding back like the ways you were just uh, demonstrating stephanie i mean i think these are the things that you know if you are getting if you are getting told something that obviously is not asking for your opinion like we discussed okay or isn't asking for you to just confirm what someone else wants to do all right uh th- this is how you go about it in my in my opinion that's what i would do you mm-hmm. know rage not going to help not going to help i mean you <laughs> right can... cuz then the, when when somebody responds with jealous rage brian like you just said mm-hmm. it makes it makes the other person want to talk to them less right so i think you you knew that emailer right yeah. like obviously obviously with the question. if yeah. you get jealous or you start to blame her or you start to shame her for saying, oh, well, you must have asked for it. You must have dressed slutty or something. So obviously mm. he thought he was in love with you because you asked, you brought it upon yourself. If you start to judge her or shame her or guilt her, that's going to make communication just shut down because nobody likes to be judged. Nobody likes to be guilted or shamed, you know, or made to feel bad about themselves, especially when they just want to be listened to. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And especially by their their loved one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, certainly. Um, I mean, and just, you know, the rate, I mean, you can, you can be mad about it. I mean, I, I would, I would understand why someone would be mad about it, but like, you don't have to go into, you know, a mode of, you know, where the guy starts throwing things. And I'm not saying this person did. In fact, I'm I'm certain he didn't, Yeah. Uh, you know, just don't go there. That's, that's not what's wanted. It's not what's needed. It's not what's helpful. It's, it's not a part of it, you know? Yeah. Now, like, like you said, Brian, it's okay to feel feel pissed off about what sure. you're hearing. And when that happens, instead of, you know, the the whole jealous rage thing, you can listen to what she says and say, oh my God, I can see, first of all, you say, I can see that you're really upset about this. I can see that you feel really creeped out right now. Yeah. And she says, yeah, yeah. And right. And then, and then you can say, well, I can tell you that when I hear this, I feel really angry too. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. So you can say that you feel angry, but you know, like saying, what you feel instead of showing what you feel through through throwing something across the room is is the better option right yeah, exactly and then she hears yeah it, he feels angry about this too because he's on my side you know yeah. he's he's angry on my behalf cuz yeah what happened to me was an injustice or whatever right yeah i think and and maybe one of the very first things to respond with is you need to share the trust because she put trust in you in telling you this. And it's a good idea to appreciate that, to appreciate her putting that trust in you and be reciprocal in that trust, trust her, especially in the future, that this is how she's going to handle it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm nodding right now. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I really agree with that. (laughs) Right. I mean, I mean, you know, like, I mean, Stephanie, I mean, we go to events and whatever else. And I mean, there's a million times where there's a million guys and frankly, they don't leave you alone. 
you know, and it's annoying. I'm just straight up. Yeah, we both we both feel annoyed about that at times. Sure. Yeah. Okay, but I trust you. You know, and and if something happened, you you know, I mean, I I trust you, and that's mm-hmm. the thing is you got to have that reciprocation of trust. I mean, it's it's powerful in the fact that she told you. And it's great to recognize the fact that she did tell you all about it mm-hmm. and that she was so open. And that is a huge part of that. You know, even do that before you get into asking, tell me more, let me help. You know, how can I help? And, or, you know, what you do that. You mean like say, Hey, I, I trust you. I know you can handle this by your, I know that you can handle this on your own, but I'm glad that you told me about it. And yeah, I or thank you, you for trusting me and telling mm-hmm. me about yeah, it. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, things like this. You know, just just make sure, like, keep working on that trust. That that's another big part. Right on. So, all right, I think we've given a lot of um, good techniques to support. I yeah. mean, and the, and they're not just applicable to this particular situation. No, they're this is just great communication. This is just opinion. any kind of communication, whether yeah. you're talking to your friend, your child, your family member, your spouse, your partner, whatever, your, your coworker, you know, anything. Um, you know, maybe maybe it sounds a little bit different when you're talking to a coworker versus your girlfriend or boyfriend or or friend or whatever. Sure. Um, but you know, the 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 basic techniques are there. You can always identify when someone's feeling something, and if they're maybe not saying it out loud, you can show that you're listening by naming what they're feeling, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just just pay attention to when, you know, try to be conscious of when people are really just saying they want to be heard. Be listened to. They just want to be listened to. And then when they're actually asking for advice advice or something along those lines. I mean, because honestly, at the end of the day, you know, the worst vice is advice. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I I think that can be a reality unless someone's really asking for it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I was just thinking like, I... (laughs) You know, there. I've had some people in my life that love to give their opinion about everything I did, said, oh, the way I lived my life, and I never asked them. And I was just thinking to myself, was there ever a time when I asked that person to give me their opinion about something that I was doing? And no, no, there wasn't, because I never wanted to hear their opinion. You know, because I knew it would always be some judgmental thing. You know, well, right? And and at the and and I think consciously or unconsciously, people start realizing, wait a minute, they they stop making this about me. You yeah, know, or mm-hmm. and, and and but this is about me, you know, and that's yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. You know, you don't feel heard. You don't feel empathized. Yeah. When when you when you just want someone when you want to be listened to and heard and instead someone is telling you what they think, like their judgments about what you're saying instead of really listening to you, you feel it feels shitty. You feel invisible. Yeah. Right. You feel like nobody's listening to you. And it's very frustrating. Absolutely. <laughs> and it just drives them back into it's antithetical to what you're trying to do. Okay, so do you think we answered that uh, question? I think that I have nothing more I could say on it. All right, cool. So um, (laughs) next up... Good on you, boyfriend. Yeah, good. Go, boyfriend. (laughs) Very supportive. We don't say that too often on this show. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, I wanted to talk about an article in this last segment, because we do have a little bit more time left in the show. Yeah, let's do it. And this was the, the... the particular reason I wanted to bring this article up has to do with um, one of the movie scenes that it kind of unpacks and analyzes. And um, there's a lot of movie scenes that get analyzed in this article, but one in particular that I wanted to uh, to highlight. And the, the article is called, it's from Cracked, and it's called Seven Reasons So Many Guys Don't Understand Sexual Consent. Now, before you get triggered by that title, um, <laughs> it Trigger. you should listen to the article because it's, 
it's good. And it's not like a male bashing article or anything like that. It just talks about a lot of reasons in, in culture that totally makes sense that put implant these little screwed up ideas about sex and c- consent in people's minds, men and women. Okay. Sure. So- well, I want to say quick now, cracked.com. Okay. Is well known for, I mean, like its purpose in life seems to be to be contrarian sometimes for contrarian's sake. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they don't lay out some actually some really great information in the first place. Some people think it's more of a joke site. Yeah. No, not really. It's kind of... No, it's meant to be entertaining, but it's I don't think it's a joke site at all. I wouldn't say that. But it does do a lot of analysis of popular media and culture. Mm -hmm. Well, Um, I I just want to put that out there that I am aware that there are certain reputations and statements about what crack.com is supposed to be, but mm -hmm. there's also a lot of really like gold nuggets on there. I agree. Yeah. Gold nuggets. That's why the cracked logo is gold. There we go. (laughs) Golden crack. Uh, (laughs) And this is actually from our producer, MK Lord. So thank you, MK. All right. So seven. Here we go. Seven reasons. So many guys don't understand sexual consent. This is by David Wong from Cracked. The following sentence applies regardless of when you read this. A famous man has been recently accused of doing sexual things to a woman or many women without consent. At the time of this writing, it was a politician's groping scandal. But next time, it'll be unwanted dick pics a powerful man sends to an intern or the spreading of hacked photos of some actress or a famous athlete getting sued by a woman whose accusations didn't get anywhere with the police. And in fact, I bet there isn't a single female reading this who hasn't been the victim of that sort of thing. Yeah, raising my hand. Uh, (laughs) Well, here's something you should know. I was taught from birth that this behavior is exactly what women want. Now, this is being written by a man? This is written by a man, David Wong. All right. We're still teaching boys that every day. Here's what the lesson plan looks like. Number seven, forcing yourself on women makes them love you. And this is the scene that I want to talk about. Remember... Remember how everyone said it was great that they cast a female star in The Force Awakens because it's good for little girls to have role models? So we all agree that pop culture heroes do influence young people, right? That's why diversity in casting is so important and all that, right? All right, so here's the first lesson I got on sexual consent. I was six years old. My hero and lifelong role model, Han Solo, approaches a woman who told him at every opportunity that she's not interested. Han comes up from behind and presses his body against hers. She's a strong woman, a fighter, so she physically shoves him off. Undeterred, Han moves back in, grabs her hands and starts rubbing them. She says, stop that, and looks nervous. When he doesn't stop, she clearly says it again. He still doesn't stop. Romantic music plays. This exchange follows. Han, what are you afraid of? Leia, afraid? Han, you're trembling. Leia, I'm not trembling. Han, you like me because I'm a scoundrel. There aren't enough scoundrels in your life. I happen to like nice men. <laughs> yeah, that's what she says. <laughs> yeah, I know. She I says, I happen to like nice men. Han, I'm a nice man. Leia, no, you're not. You're... And he kisses her. Note, her head is pressed up against a metal wall. And all of this occurs in a sealed spacecraft floating in the cold vacuum of outer space. Even if she wanted to leave, she couldn't because of the implications. The result of this encounter is that she falls in love with this man, and they spend the rest of their lives together. Hi, I'm David Wong, and I've been conducting a 40-year experiment on men's toxic attitudes about women, mainly by living my life with lots of them swishing around inside of my skull. 
And now, because I'm so unspeakably old, the film I'm referencing above is from the ancient days of 1980. Society has advanced a great deal since then. Hey, did I mention that when I found the clip on YouTube, the ad below it was for the sexy Princess Leia slave costume? Sexy. Slave. I mean, everybody gets this, right? The fantasy isn't that she's showing skin. The fantasy is that she didn't choose to wear that. She's a princess. She's regal. She's a noble warrior. And now we're going to masturbate to her wearing a humiliating, skimpy costume that she was forced to put on, presumably under the threat of death by rancor. But back to the groping thing. I'd estimate that 95% of the action movie cool guy role models of my youth molested women into loving them at least once. James Bond did it in well, every movie, I think. In Goldfinger, 1964, he rapes Pussy Galore in a barn, which causes her to abandon her life of crime and join his side. In The Mask of Zorro, 1998, a woman tries to kill Antonio Banderas, and in response, he strips her naked with his blade and forces a kiss. As a result, they fall in love. Uh, Okay, like, well, if you want to keep going, keep going. tell me what your criticism is. Some of this, like, this is absolutely true. And I read this whole article myself as Mm -hmm. well. And there are points in it that are so spot on. They are so dead on. Like one movie that women love, The Notebook, is so disgusting in how it portrays. Because what does the lead guy do? He fucking hangs off of a Ferris wheel. He hangs off of a Ferris wheel and says, if you don't go on a date with me, I'm going to jump. Like, I'm, you know, I'm going to fall to my death. Mm -hmm. That is so fucking twisted to say that that is romantic. That's disgusting. Okay. Now, caveat, obviously I have some bias. I'm a huge Star Wars fan and Mask of Zorro is one of my favorite movies of all time. Now, there's, there's a little bit with Mask of Zorro, that's really getting taken out of context. Okay. Because there's an entire dance scene before that to where those two characters are obviously in love. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they are, you know, and, and she even admits that she loves his passion and that she feels it. Okay. So, I mean, so ta- that's, that's sort of taking it out. I, I think even though he's masked at the time, they don't exactly know it's each other, but there's a little more chemistry, human chemistry than that. Right. Don't okay. you think it's a little bit confused though? Like there is a, conf- there's a fight scene where she tries to kill him and well, then. Yeah. But even the fight scene I think is, is definitely being used as a tease. Like, she likes the bad boy. She herself is riding off, like, doing rebellious things at night. And so there's kind of this whole rebellious play. I'm just saying, I think I agree with the point being made. And I think that it's in tons of movies. I'm just saying a couple of these scenes, I think, are getting a little taken out of context. Okay. Well, do you think there's a general theme in movies of men doing creepy, aggressive... 100%. Like, very aggressive actions, physical violence sometimes, and then the woman falls in love with him 100 percent. i totally like i said the, the points are dead on okay i'm just saying that i think there's been there's a little bit of unfairness in like in the case uh, examples you know being used now i agree with the han solo thing and in fact when you and i first watched uh the star yeah, wars that was the together, first thing i said you brought that that's up that's the rapiest scene i've ever yeah yes and like when he does the whole thing i love you i know you know people know that scene before he's getting put into carbonite spoiler alert everybody <laughs> but <laughs> um you know, the, it, it's it's a very dick move on Han Solo's part. I mean, she gets her revenge in Return of the Jedi where she gets to say it to him. Mm-hmm. But regardless, um, now, here's the interesting thing with The Empire Strikes Back. It was written by a woman. It was written by Leia Brackett. Mm-hmm. I don't care what anybody says. George Lucas didn't write that shit because there's no way anybody's... There's no way you're going to allow that incest scene where Leia's kissing Luke... You know, in, uh, on on Echo Base on Hoth. Yeah, I'm cringing. And then let that go on. 
bullshit. It's because there was a different writer, and Leia Brackett died shortly thereafter, after that movie came out. Okay, okay so, so this is your theory? This isn't proven fact? or well, No, no, no. She's in the credits as the writer. Oh, okay. okay. And, and she's kind of given top billing. Oh. So, you know, it's her, George Lucas, Lawrence Casting. Okay. Okay, I'm just saying is that, you know... There was at least a woman on staff for during clarity. the writing. Yeah. And I give her credit because, you know, everybody says this is the greatest movie ever. You know, this and some people say it's just straight out the greatest movie ever. It's certainly the greatest Star Wars in a lot of people's opinions. It's not mine. I think it's Return of the Jedi. But my <laughs> point being, okay, is that I give full credit to Leia Brackett because there's a reason this movie is so different. There's a reason this movie is so goddamn good. And I think it's because, yes, a fucking woman wrote it, you know, and. and but it still has this trope in there. Sure. So do you think she she was aware of it or she just wrote it in because that was a script that was in her mind from other scripts that she had watched in oh, other it, movies? You it know? could have been all Nancy Friday's Secret Garden. I don't know. You know, or it could have been a trope that like it could have been. Or do all- you think she was like a f- conscious feminist and she was like, well, I better put this rapey scene in there or else men won't like like my movie. I, I mean, I'm totally open to and people are going to going to freak out at me saying this, that it was some kind of patriarchal, you know, conditioning. To where, like, she accepted, oh, no, this is how relationships work. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I'm open to that. But, I mean, that's a very, the, you know, the relationships in that movie are very confused. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, because, again, you have this, you know, Luke and Leia, you know, Luke is Leia's sister. Uh, spoiler alert again. But, <laughs> uh, okay, but but they have this whole makeout scene, you know, in a med bay. I mean, come on like like what the hell's going on there you know this is certainly not the most disturbing part of star wars you know that 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 han solo is being rapey mm-hmm. okay but i mean well they didn't know blah 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 uh anyway i'm not i'm not getting into that but i agree that that was a fucked up little scene i just wanted to bring it out that some people might come out and say hey leia brackett was there she was she was the woman she was writing this uh you know how can you complain about it well no you can still complain because i agree with what this article is saying mm-hmm. so all of that at, at the end of it. I'm just making the huge caveats here. Cool. All right. Well, um, let's let's go on because yeah, there's yeah. more. Actually, he says, rather than recount the thousands and thousands of examples of assault them until they love you seduction methods in movies, I'm going to prove how relevant this is or prevalent this is by rattling off a list of examples only using Harrison Ford's filmography. Uh-huh. In Blade Runner 1982, he slams a woman or a female replicant, against a wall after she tries to leave and then forces her to say, kiss me. She acts terrified right up until they start having sex. In Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, 1984, Ford snatches a fleeing woman with his whip and yanks her back to him. They fall in love. In yep. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 1989, he forces a kiss. The woman pulls away and says, how dare you kiss me? And then kisses him back passionately. Long before I was old enough to date or even had any female friends, it was made more than clear. In any relationship, men are the predators, women are the prey. Their expressions of fear and rejection, including defensive physical attacks, are a coy game to be overcome, like a tricky clasp on a bra. There you go. Yeah, no, I I, I have no argument. On I think those. that's solid. I mean, yeah. I, that's, that's totally... And you know... I would never have been aware of that until, um, you know, like just maybe a few years ago, I would guess. Mm -hmm. Or at least until I was like halfway through my 20s. Like I watched so many movies that had those themes in them. Didn't even think twice that there was anything wrong with it. Yeah. I mean, and and it gets in some ways it gets a lot worse because I think it also perpetuates something that I think is absolute bullshit, which is sex and violence. Oh, Um, yeah. yeah. Now, I think that. So here's the here's the here's the caveat here. Sex and hunting. I think there may be a relationship. Okay, like I, you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, if a guy goes and kills a lion, I can see why that would be attractive to a mate. 
All right. A guy killing another human being? No, because I can, I, no. I guarantee you, humans killing humans is the most unnatural, depraved act. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like you feel sick when you do that. There, there's no reason to say that, that those things are somehow related in my opinion, uh, or not just in my opinion. I, I, I just think it's so. Um, but that, but I think that's where people get confused. They're like, oh yeah, sex and violence. Well, sex and hunting is very different. Okay. You know, sex and human on human violence. No, I don't, I don't think that's, but see, that the only gets played hunt, up just the, as much. The only hunting I see going on in these films and stuff is, is the hunt of the woman, you know, uh-huh. mm. right? Like, sure. Do you think like, do you think it's true that men like to chase or whatever and women like to kind of play hard to get? No, because yeah, first off, let me tell you, it's an, I think it's an unsex, unsuccessful strategy for an, a real relationship. I don't chase. I never yeah, chase. It's, it's just such a facade, you know? It's like, if you yeah. like each other, just say it, right? Yeah, just say <laughs> it. It makes it a lot easier. Or you can it, get to the fucking, right? Right. Or it just kind of happens. You're just like, yeah, yeah, you know, let's go hang out. I mean, like, literally, right. that's how it goes. And I don't understand why in other people's lives this doesn't seem to have worked. It's worked beautifully <laughs> in mine. I've had many a relationship. And I mean, now I'm in the best one I've ever experienced. Uh, so well, Thanks, Brian. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way about you. Right. I, I was just going to say, like, I think... You know, I could see how some people might find it sexy where both people really know what's going on. He knows, okay, she likes me. She knows he likes me. And then they play this game of like, oh, well, I'm going to play. The girl's going to play hard to get and the man's going to chase her. If they're both like on board with it before that and they've sort of like they're already on the same page, Mm -hmm. I could see how that might be a little bit sexy. Right. Yeah, you can have a fun little role play or something. I don't know. (laughs) Right. But when it's not discussed beforehand... How do you know if the woman really doesn't like you and wants you to go away or if she's sort of playing hard to get and just teasing you, you know? Sure. And there's some guys who really can't tell the difference. (laughs) So number six, asking permission is a sign of weakness. If you're wondering, no, I've never in my life groped a woman who didn't grope me first, says the author. This is not because I was a gentleman who cared about consent. This is not because I was a gentleman who cared about consent, he says. If you cornered me in high school and asked why I hadn't just grabbed a girl at a party and made her kiss me, I'd have said it was because I wasn't cool enough or hot enough. I'd have to lose weight and make the football team to do something like that. See, I was told that the ones who held back until they had permission were the pussies, the cowards, the nerds. That was told to me by people in my life and by lots of movies and shows I saw back then. Here's a screen cap, he says, from one sitcom back in the day of a girl saying, there's nothing less sexy than a dude asking if he can kiss you. And when I said that show aired back in the day, of course, I meant 2012. (laughs) That's from an episode of New Girl. For every no means no PSA I've come across, I'd say I've encountered, oh, about 10,000 messages saying slash implying that nothing is sexier than a guy who doesn't wait for consent. Did you get that message too, Brian, that, you know, it's... It's only like nerds who like, for example, would like ask, hey, can I kiss you or something? Sure. Yeah, uh, that that's definitely a huge message. And I mean, and it gets, you know, it gets perpetuated. Like the real alpha males just take what they want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's through all forms of entertainment nonstop. um, And and like a lot of, you know, young girls, women, whatever, uh, unfortunately, kind of buy into it, too, that that's how they're supposed to. This is how things are supposed to work. Um, Yeah. Oh, I've heard women say this. I've heard women believe these myths, yeah. Yeah, and it's sad, you know, because I cannot imagine anything sexier than consent. 
Um, I mean, it, it's, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like then, then asking it's like, oh, well, thank you for respecting yeah. my body. Thank you for respecting my personhood. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That, it, that makes me want to kiss you even more. Right. 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 But or then, do other things with you. But then the lack of respect for one's own personhood and other people's personhood. I suppose that's why we have government. Right. Sorry to, mm. to bring in a little liberty aspect there. But <laughs> yeah. mean, like that, it's obviously pervasive. And look at what it's wrought. Uh, yeah. 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 You know, I don't remember if this article got into it at all, but like, has alcohol come up at all? We don't oh, have to go I, down no, that. No, I don't think alcohol comes up at all. I, we don't have to go down that side tangent. Mm. But I think that's like, talk about something that is so fucking pervasive in entertainment. Oh, man. Like, it is nonstop. And I, I get so, you know, people can do whatever they want. Obviously, like I said, I respect personhood. You drink, you drink, you do drugs, whatever you do, what you do. Okay. I have no problem with it. It's not my bag. You do it. But, like, I feel like consent gets so murky. Yeah, it's like it's really like you're talking to a different person, almost. Yeah, right? well, the I mean, Drunk do they... Stephanie is different than sober Stephanie. Sure, like, what, um, like, you know, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sober Stephanie wants sober Stephanie to enjoy sex. <laughs> sure, right. So, <laughs> so sober Stephanie doesn't need to suppress... <laughs> herself this is sorry this is metaphor is going nowhere but um basically I, i'm trying to say i've had some partners who couldn't enjoy sex sober right who had to get drunk right before and, they would let loose and and i i want to empathize especially with women because like like i'm, I'm a little more oh, because of all the puritanical shit that that gets foisted on us. yeah, yeah. Be, because of all yeah all From the cultural and culture yeah yeah all the cultural mores mores that get laid down on women like I get it that they feel a need to like that they need something to kind of you know loosen up, uh, you know mentally whatever mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, but you know I don't know I don't have a great answer to that. Is that like when when is when does consent go out the door once you start adding in whatever drug into the mix? Right. I mean, your inhibitions are there to protect you for to a certain extent. Sure. They can there can be they can be overly harsh. When you've grown up with a lot of religious mores, and in that case, they're protecting you from something that's not really a threat. Yeah, right? well, then, but then you have personal work to do. You know, you, there's no royal road to right. getting mentally straight. That's exactly straight. what yeah. I was saying. That alcohol gets rid of inhibitions that protect you, as well as inhibitions that just stop you from having fun for dumb reasons. You yeah, know? right, right, right. So, I mean, in movies, I mean, this is something that's just as much shown off is that, look, if you want to have a good time with Prince Charming, you got to have a couple sips. You know, you got to have a couple drinks. You got to go to that fancy dinner party. I mean, there's so many things that I don't even think this list covered that gets laid out as this is, uh, you know, that I don't know. I, I well, mean, like, shouldn't it be a an ideal or a goal to be able to have fun while you're sober, like without the aid of any other substances? Well, I would think. But I mean, you should be, I mean, and it's not just, not, you know, yeah, like you said, have fun. It's not just sex. It's not just love. Like. Yeah, no, just fun. I'm talking about fun in general. Yeah. Sex included in that, but yeah. just fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make a super unpopular statement, and it's just mine. It's not Stephanie's. It's mine and mine alone, okay? I just uh -oh. want to say this. And that is, is that I, like, I have a really hard time getting a straight answer from people. Some people I get a very honest answer, and I appreciate that from them, about why they drink in the first place. Because usually the the best answer I can get, because come on, folks, that shit doesn't taste good. 
don't give me that, that that old mill tastes good, you know, or, no. or whatever yeah. you're drinking. Like, like it's, it's horse piss. Okay. Um, and I'm not, I'm not pushing any teetotaling. I don't care. Okay. I'm just saying the best answer that I usually get from people, the most honest answer I feel I get is they say they don't like who they are. Yeah. Or they do like the person they become they when like they get drunk. They, yeah. Right. Well, they work on becoming that person all the you know, time without yeah. the need for, for this and all this stuff. And somebody's going to say, well, what about caffeine? Come on. Like, that's such a <laughs> cop out. That's not even answering the question. It's like, you know, do you like who you are without beer or, you know, without alcohol or do it, you not? Alcohol alters your personality and behavior so much more drastically than caffeine or even nicotine. Yeah. Like oh. caffeine maybe can make you a little more alert and productive. Okay, I can get that, but... But alcohol just alters your behavior so much. Yeah, I just I want to hear the answer outside of it just tastes good. OK, because <laughs> I, I really don't I don't buy that. OK, I want to hear the answer as to why. I mean, you could say, well, there's some wines that taste good. OK, look, look, Jack, if you've got three thousand dollars a bottle, you've, you don't have this problem in life. You've, you've got a whole lot of things obviously figured out. Mm-hmm. All right. But the cheap stuff. That stuff doesn't taste good. <laughs> so I, I, I'd love to hear what that answer is. So there, there's one question for the Sovereign Tech listeners. It's like, okay, really, what is it? You know, what does it really do for you? Uh, yeah, but- you know, I've, I have heard a good answer once, and it was from someone who was, is, is like, you know, a very, very much into like self-awareness and stuff sure. like that. And he said, it's like, it's like an anesthetic, but like for feelings. So it just is very good at, dulling uncomfortable feelings like anxiety like embarrassment like you know sure okay well i mean then things that hold you back from having fun okay but then like aren't those things that that maybe it'd be a good idea to process you know to 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 work out sure Uh, but it's easier just to have a few drinks (laughs) yeah i guess i i don't know that yeah so i just i don't mean to be preachy okay and i don't care what anybody does I, I don't want to ban anything. I'm not telling people what to do. All right. I, no, that I, should be obvious. Yeah, I hope so. Um, it just, yeah, I, I, this is, this raises a lot of questions. And this is something that gets pushed in movies as much as anything else that's in this article, mm-hmm. um, I think. And I know it's an unpopular opinion. It's mine and mine alone. Relax. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just saying. So if you want to continue, please. <laughs> okay. So getting back to the article, he says, Sure, I get what the female actress voicing the words of some male writers was saying, that girls like guys who are attentive enough to know what she wants before she even says it. He shouldn't be need to he shouldn't need to be told why she's mad at him or what she'd like for her anniversary or whether or not she's ready for the next step. Emotional intelligence is sexy, and there's nothing sexier than a guy who cares enough to pay attention to the subtle cues. Damn right. You know, the way Han Solo knew that Leia secretly wanted him to back her into a corner and force himself on her. Oh, <laughs> The way that he was able to detect that all of her prior rejections and coldness was all a test to find out if he could see past the facade. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. Five, women like to be pursued and thus always play hard to get. If you went back and found me at the age when I realized I knew absolutely everything, 20, (laughs) and asked me to explain gender roles, here's what I would have told you. In this modern world, the quality of a woman's life is overwhelmingly dependent on what kind of man she can attract. A woman married to a capable man is simply going to have a higher standard of living, period. Her self-worth is thus based largely on how desirable she is to men, and on how many men are pursuing her at any given moment. The need for more suitors is due to the law of supply and demand. It is to her advantage to create competition by tempting as many men as possible, and then making it difficult for any single one to gain her attention. 
Thus, women gain power through rejecting men, and those rejections have nothing to do with how they truly feel. This, I'd have said, is also the reason most, quote, slut-shaming comes from other women. If a female hops in bed with any guy who comes along, it lowers the value of female attention and sex for all women. The price of gasoline would drop pretty fast if one supplier started giving it away. So much like OPEC, women culturally collude to keep the value of sex and female companionship high by making it artificially difficult to acquire it. This is why Princess Leia's wealthy royal peers would disapprove of her spreading her legs for a, quote, scoundrel. And by the way, this does sound like a 20-year-old theory of gender roles. <laughs> yeah. but, but a lot of people uh, who are way older than that embrace it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Conversely, Han Solo is a hero precisely because he sees through this artifice and knows exactly how to confidently stride past those barriers. The primary attractive traits in males are physical strength and aggressiveness. And he knows that Leia's feigned resistance is a test of those attributes. You can see the full sequence in each of the clips I linked earlier. The female fights, the male demonstrates his physical superiority, and the female acknowledges his suitability as a mate and willingly gives in. You have proven you are strong enough to have me. <laughs> I, but this is literally things that people yes. say. Like, people really believe, believe this. This. Absolutely. this is evolutionary. This is the so-called evo-psych. Uh, you know, this is the, the so-called psychology that's per pervade in pickup artist books. Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, I'll tell you, I think the reason that, that it kind of works isn't just because it's a cultural meme inside of entertainment, mm -hmm. you know, and inside movies. I think part of it is, is that oftentimes aggression... Uh, and physical ability and things like this can come off as confidence and confidence is the real sexy. Like that's, that's yeah. what really attracts A lot of people. women confuse confidence, uh, confuse arrogance and assholery with confidence. Right. I mean, sometimes aggression can come from confidence. Sometimes a lot of these things can come from, from real confidence in a person's ability and what they know and all of that. I'm not saying it can't, but it's tough sometimes to tell if it's, if it's all a sham, if it's all a show, uh, or what, you know? Yeah. I, I think genuine confidence and manliness is a thing, you know, yep. it's a thing, but it it doesn't happen to 20-year-olds. You know, it, it <laughs> comes with life experience, and yep. it comes with things like, you know, maybe having started a company and learned all the lessons that come along with that. Sure. Having had many different act interactions with many different types of people. Seeing the having world. Having traveled, yep, having yeah. seen the world, having had lots of relationships with lots of people and friendships, and knowing how to navigate your way through social situations. Mm -hmm. And how to be a good conversationalist, asking questions about other people. Yeah. Showing some humility, even though you have this degree of life experience. Yep. I mean, that's all like things that go into the confidence slash manliness umbrella to me. Mm -hmm. And none of that is like aggressiveness, physical violence, nothing to do with that. Right. In fact, I think that makes a man appear actually scared, you know. Oh, right. Oh, well, you're touching on a huge subject. But yes, <laughs> I, I think there, to, some, to some degree that can very much be true. Um, like, I, you know... <laughs> Oh, I'm not going to say it. Keep going. No, say it. No, no, no please say no. it. I've already said enough incendiary shit. <laughs> no, I'm really curious. All right. So, you know, when, when we're like at some events, you know, mm -hmm. and say it's like, uh, say it's outdoors, the events, and you got guys packing three knives, oh, four guns yep. and all this stuff. It's like, brother, if you're not compensating, like, if yeah, you're, what is that like about? You, you have, you, you are on you know, you have such an actual amount of like personal confidence and power that you, you, you are flashing the shit. This is horrendous. You know, like, like that, that is so off the wall. 
uh, to be doing that. And, and that's, I mean, that's a huge problem I have with a lot of weapons, guns and other things included mm-hmm. is that it creates a false sense of confidence. Uh, yeah. That, it's it's a display really of power and it, it's like they act shocked when people feel scared and threatened yeah. around them when they're open carrying. And it's like, dude, you got a gun right there. Like, what are you trying to, what message are you sending with yeah, that? Yeah. And why I, do you have that? Are you going to use it? You know, like, yeah, and, why you would know, you have it if you're not going to use it? Right. I mean, and this is a thing oh, you, you unpacked it. Okay. <laughs> well, this is what we do on sex. We I unpack know, but, things. All right. But this is the thing that when you actually, if you go to genuine self-defense courses, okay, that talk about this sort of stuff that, that teach you how to interact with people all around the world. All right. Not just in, you know, West bumfuck wherever. Okay. Wyoming. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, not in Broken Bow, Oklahoma or something. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, they will tell you like th- there is an importance in the eyes when you have like, that's kind of the first thing that they tell you that they're going to teach you is to actually teach you the confidence that no matter what situation you're in, you are able to the best of your ability, protect yourself and that you will find this very interesting thing that is very hard to quantify, but it is part of the human condition that, and it goes back. I think, you know, it's an evolutionary byproduct or product, whatever. That when you're walking down the street, you know, you, there's, there's a feeling, a look in the eye to where you don't mess with that person. Okay. Now, I mean, maybe some people haven't grown up in cities. I have in New York city. This has nothing to do with race or color has nothing to do with that at all. Okay. It could be white, black, whatever. It doesn't matter. Okay. You know, there's like people, certain people will give you like, there's like a nod that'll be given because there's sort of a recognition. Okay. This isn't like some kind of alpha beta thing either. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that this is part of a self-defense course is that there is an exudance of, you know, of, of confidence that you can have. All right. There, there is something, there's like an internal confidence that you can have that people for whatever reason kind of recognize. Maybe it's just a little, you know, it's a way you walk the cut of your jib. I don't know. All right. Exactly what it is, but What did you just look at someone and then you sort of communicate with that look that you're you're not afraid of them and that you respect their space and you're not going to start any trouble, but you're also not afraid of them? Yeah, something like that. I mean, and it's very tough to quantify that, but I think it's very real. You know, it, it, I mean, personally, I I feel like I've seen it kind of kind of happen and go down. Mm -hmm. You don't need guns to achieve that. You know, you don't need that at all. And I think, honestly, when you start, when you're packing that much heat around you, you're doing the exact opposite. And anybody that actually knows a thing or two about self-defense would look at you and say, you know, in, I'm going to speak very (laughs) conventionally, not in the way that I would, you fucking weak coward. You know, that's exactly what would happen. It's like, you need that, you loser. You you know what I mean? I mean, that's, that's. Especially in an environment where you're supposed to be surrounded by friends, right? Oh, that it's comes not, off even stranger. Yeah. And it's not, it's like, oh, well, I'm doing this to overcompensate for the rest of the world where I can't do it. Shut up. You, you know, I mean, like, yeah, it's <laughs> like, yeah, okay, you can, but should you, right? Well, right. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, that's the thing. It's like, okay, you have the right to be an asshole. Yes, you do. Should you be? No. Yeah. <laughs> you know? exactly. Motherfucker, no. <laughs> oh, man. It, 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 well, and and, and all, right. all of that is also in entertainment, but please continue. All right, back to this article, number four. Everything women do is intended to stoke male hunger. Here is the first porn magazine. I The force, I was thinking Star Wars. <laughs> Here is the first porn magazine I ever owned, and he links to a picture of a Sports Illustrated with Kathy Ireland on oh, the cover. Oh, Kathy Ireland. There was no internet in the 1980s, he says, and actual porn was risky to own if you were a kid in the Midwest. That was the genius of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. It gave middle America something to masturbate to under the cover of reading about sports. 
Everybody knew what was going on, obviously. In many of the photos, at least part of the swimsuit was missing. The woman cupping her naked breasts with her hands, pouting coyly at the camera. Maybe a thumb hooked around her bikini bottom like she's about to pull it off. Likewise, when women in bikinis turned up in movies, they existed purely as titillating jerk-off material for the teenage boys in the audience. Literally every single image of a woman in a bikini I saw outside of a swimwear catalog was presented in this way as something for us to drool over, something we couldn't have. Stoking our appetites, advertising a product. And by now, you know what that product is, right? So after having lived my entire life with the clear understanding that this is an outfit women wear to make men want to ejaculate, what thoughts do you think went through my dumb young mind when I went to the beach and saw real women wearing the same? Do you think I was able to see them as humans instead of coin manipulators? <laughs> the completely rational reaction from any of these women at the beach would be, I'm not wearing it for you, perv. I'm wearing it because I'm swimming and this is swimwear. What do you want me to wear? A burqa? There is no good answer. Everyone should be able to wear what they want, but acting confused by the ravenous thoughts that pound through the brains of nearby males is to ignore the cultural context they grew up in. She says her outfit makes one statement, while virtually 100% of posters, magazines, movies, TV shows, songs, music videos, billboards, video games, poems, novels, etc. say it makes another. Sure, the guys can control how they act at the sight of the outfit, but they cannot control how they feel. It's been programmed in as an involuntary physical reaction, a hormonal trigger. Thanks to a lifetime of cultural training, a bikini is a bell that makes the dog salivate. Now, tie this into the per pervasive belief that women are always simultaneously attracting us while pretending they don't want us. Would it stand to reason that, quote, I'm only wearing this as swim... Oh, sorry, wouldn't it stand to reason that the, quote, I'm only wearing this as swimwear line is nothing but one more bit of strategic play acting? Now realize that it's not just bikinis that have been turned into a fetish. There's an entire porn subreddit that's got nothing but girls in yoga pants. Here's one with girls in glasses. Go do a Google image search for the word schoolgirl. You'll be looking at a bunch of fetish pics and sprinkled throughout photos of actual children. This is why no statistic about the prevalence of sexual assault could ever surprise me. And note that I'm using the definition of the term that includes things like groping. But when I was growing up, I was told, dot, 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 sexual assault equals a guy in an alley with a knife. Now, can we stop down and talk about the bikini thing? Did yes. You, did you agree with what he said about yeah. that you're kind of conditioned to think of bikinis as like, it's a tease and the woman's trying to sexually attract you and it's all about sex, sex, sex. And Yeah, I agree with it, but I think it's unfortunate. Um, because I think the bikini, the mini skirt, a lot of these, you know, clothing styles that, that have, you know, been attributed as sexy. I mean, and they are, at least in my opinion, uh, have, were really about, uh, you know, in many ways, women's liberation. They were about, you know, women getting like freedom in and being able to express themselves how they wanted. Uh, I, I mean, you, you know, you think about like the mini skirt wasn't even allowed. I think it, like, yeah, it came to England before it came to America, right? Yeah, and it like, was like one summer where everybody started wearing them. Right. And it was really scandalous. Yeah, it was a big problem, you know? In fact, I mean, one of my favorite stories is that like on Star Trek, like that was that was scandalous to have women wearing miniskirts. You know, it wasn't, I mean, Gene Roddenberry was a womanizer. I, you know, I won't hide that fact, but, uh, you know, I, I think that's great, you know? go ahead show it show what you want you know what i mean but but the problem he's saying is that it's extending to everything it's extending to yoga pants and glasses right. 
Like these just are fucking normal clothes items that women wear. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, but but the guys are like, oh, I don't believe it. It must be because she's trying to titillate me, and she's like, you idiot, I'm trying to see with my I, glasses. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Entertainment, and this this comes down under a phrase that is not the best name, but you got because you have to spell it out when you say it. The problem is male gaze. Okay, which is that's G A Z E. Yes, all right? not male gaze, although that would be cool. Yeah, like, that's fine. G A Y S. Yeah, <laughs> rock and roll with that. But male gaze, the idea is, is that in entertainment, so much of it is made by men that the like every single directed directed action within the entertainment is through the perception of what the male wants. Yeah, you and, are watching through the eyes of a man. So, like when right. you'll see a shot that zooms in on tits, or it it like looks down on like a juicy ass or something, you mm-hmm. know. Um, that's male gaze. Yeah. Now the concept of male gaze gets trans. I, I think it gets used against some forms of entertainment unfairly like comic books, but that's another story. Okay. Uh, but that, that's really the issue here. I mean, if you just go through life saying, okay, this person obviously didn't dress up for me that way. No problem. You know, but it's true. Entertainment puts on you that, oh, this is what this is all about. Right. And it's like, why would. Why would you assume that someone else is dressing for you, like to please you? Oh, it's ridiculous. But that is such a common assumption. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for you know, just for me, for example, I wear all black all the time. I guarantee you, every single human being on the planet Earth, I do not do that for you. <laughs> that is totally right? for me. Uh, like, how how weird would it be if someone just walked up to you and started saying like hey, you look really good in that shirt. You wore that to attract me, didn't you? You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it would. I'm saying it would be unusual, right? Well, You'd probably I, like it, but well, would it I happen? Mean, it's no. flattering, right? But then at the same time, it's like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, like I, I, you know, my... my yeah, but that's like literally what every man is saying when they see a woman wearing exactly. makeup or like just a normal outfit. You know, it's like, hey, yeah. Yeah. You wore that for me, you know? Yeah, nonsense. <laughs> when that's not always the case. Yeah, sometimes it is. Sometimes they're dressing that way with the intention of attracting men, but not always. No, right, right. It's not, it's not fair to make that assumption for everybody. Yeah, why should that be the default way of thinking? It should be quite the opposite, I, I would think. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's true. Entertainment does perpetuate that. Yeah. And it's just like, not everything is about you, right? <laughs> right. Not everything is made for your pleasure, right? Well, everything is about you, but it's also about everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> It's not just about you. Right. Okay, so number three, sexual assault equals guy in an alley with a knife. That's the third, uh, the myth number three there. Let's be clear, he says, during my formative years, I was absolutely taught that rape was wrong many times. But rape was defined as a man with a ski mask in an alley forcing himself on a stranger under the threat of violence. Date rape was a term I'd heard, sure, but it was either when a guy drugged a woman and got or got rough with her, situation where she's left with a bloody lip and torn clothes. If you asked me to define date rape at the time, I'd have said, it's like what James Bond did to Pussy Galore, only if the guy wasn't handsome. <laughs> if someone had come in and told teenage me that groping a woman or forcing kisses was a form of sexual assault, I'd have been very, very confused. You just called into the... You just called into question most of the action heroes of my childhood. You called them serial rapists. And what if it made her fall in love with him? I had never in any of my public school years had a lesson saying that you needed to wait for verbal consent before touching a woman. I saw the quarterback of the football team slap girls on the butt. I saw guys reach around and grab girls' boobs as a prank. I saw mistletoe hung over doorways and was told that if you and a girl stood under it, she had to kiss you. (laughs) 
What? I know it's magical. No laws required, folks. That yeah. is just pure societal mores. Yeah. And, and just to show how powerful those are and how ridiculous they are. Anyway, uh, go ahead. One time when we were playing volleyball at the beach, Dr. Dre ran up and unhooked a girl's bikini top. This is, I don't know if he was really at the beach with Dr. Dre. Uh, maybe it was just something in a video. I maybe. It. Yeah. Again, he says, I never did any of those things, but not because I thought they were wrong, because I was too nervous and I fucking hated myself for it. Have I mentioned that yet? Have I mentioned how much shame I felt at the time for not being a quote, real man? This is scary. Okay. So you had some, you look like you had something you wanted to say about that. Yeah. So th- that, that whole point about um, the knife. You know, in, in yeah, that the definition of rape. The only thing that's rape is like a stranger attacks you in an alley. And yeah, it's like a, a violent point. assault. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I mean, in this, and even the Dr. Dre comments and all that. This really kind of hints at something else. Is that, you know, we forget. You know, I, it's funny how many people say it's like, well, what are you out of touch with reality? You know, and all this stuff. It's like, no, most people seem to be out of touch with reality because they're not realizing that. Like in that Dr. Dre video or in whatever, whatever they happen to be watching. I mean, honestly, there's consent throughout the whole thing because the actors signed a contract. They're getting paid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not that I'm, you know, upholding yeah, they can't separate that. It's a fantasy that it's something on TV. Right. In porn where that, that, that gals, you know, like, you know, getting it hard and it looks like she's loving it. Mm-hmm. Look, she knew exactly what she was getting into. She signed up for that. Yeah. Right. That doesn't mean that you get to do that out of nowhere. You know, when you start to, you know, you have some kind of sexual encounter mm-hmm. or something. Uh, so I think, I think people really have, do have a very hard time. I mean, even when it's supposed to be something that's like reality, even if, even if it's some documentarian, you know, running up to a politician and getting them on camera, making some kind of funny joke or something, understand all that is fucking staged. I mean, maybe the politician... <laughs> reality TV is not so real, yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe the politician's answer wasn't staged, but the whole thing was kind of a setup, and you're not, you're not really getting reality. Anything you see on the screen, don't, you really, largely, I, I wouldn't believe you know, or at least I, I would take with a, you know, look at with a very critical eye. Um, I don't know. I kind of have a hard time believing that, that Dr. Dre was literally on a beach somewhere and just like unsnapped a girl's bra and nobody did anything about that. Mm-hmm. Like nobody did anything about that. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of people who have no fucking clue who Dr. Dre is, who I imagine would say something. <laughs> You, you know, I mean, right. that, that that's kind that's really ridiculous. Like even if I saw and, and I say this with all respect, if I saw William Shatner do that. I would go up to William Shatner and say, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Like that, that's, that's insane. Uh, so, you know, in that case, I mean, there's, there's a whole slew of problems there. Certainly, you know, getting shown off. Uh, but yeah, I could bring up some other examples, but I, I agree. This is a, that is a big problem of how, you know, what gets told to you as the narrative and what actually, oh, what sexual absolutely. assault is. I mean, there's studies that show that, you know, the most likely to be convicted in trials and stuff like that is, are rapes that fit that narrative when someone atta- a stranger attacks you in an alleyway with a weapon sure right. but even then the women still get asked well what were you wearing why were you walking in that alley were yep. you asking you know like basically how can we prove that you were asking for it in some way yeah right yeah uh yeah that's kind of the you know the old saying that oh well he's innocent until proven guilty and i'm a liar until i'm you know proven mm-hmm. that i'm telling the truth and so, yeah yeah wow no wonder why nobody says anything but anyway yeah go ahead so, okay, number two is all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is wrong. 
<laughs> Wait, what does that one have to do with groping or consent? Glad you asked, because I think everyone misses this. Talk radio shithead Rush Limbaugh made headlines after the infamous Donald Trump groping accusations by saying this, quote, You know what the magic word, the only thing that matters in American sexual mores today is? One thing. You can do anything. The left will promote and understand and tolerate anything as long as there is one element. You know what that is? Consent. If there's consent on both or all or three or all four, however many are involved in the sex act, that's perfectly fine. Whatever it is. But if the left ever senses and smells that there's no consent in part of the equation, then here come the rape police. And then he has a little gift that says, also known as the police. Uh, (laughs) I'm curious to know how many of you kind of agree with him. This is the author talking now. I'm curious to know how many of you kind of agree with him versus how many of you got a chill down your spine. I switched from the former to the latter exactly halfway through my life. To a large part of the nation's Christian population, what he's saying still makes perfect sense. See, it wasn't up to Hollywood or public schools to teach me morality. For me, and for virtually everyone I knew, that came on Sundays at church. And I never got one sermon or Sunday school lesson on sexual consent. So what, they taught the congregation to be rapists? No, they taught that all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage was equally wrong. So yes, rape was punishable by eternal hellfire, but you know what the punishment was for having consensual intercourse before marriage? Also, eternal hellfire. (laughs) Premarital handjob in the back of a car? Eternal hellfire. (laughs) Oral sex at any time? Eternal hellfire. Homosexual sex? Eternal hellfire. Masturbation? Eternal hellfire. There was no gradient to the sins or punishments. Everything was black and white, and virtually everything in the black category was totally consensual. Two people, quote, consenting to perform a sinful sexual act was no different from two people conspiring to rob a bank. Either the act was pure in the eyes of God, or it wasn't, and the only pure sex act was married intercourse. And note that many of the married women in the Bible had been bought like livestock. Thus, there was no reason to talk about anything else. If they taught a lesson about how forcing a woman to kiss you was wrong, they'd have been implying that consensual kissing was okay, and premarital kissing equals eternal hellfire. This is why so many of you are confused about the Christian criticism of gay marriage. The, quote, they'll be marrying children and animals next bit. Um, <clears throat> oh, like when they say as an argument against gay marriage, oh, next they'll be marrying horses, right? Yeah, right. They genuinely don't understand the difference, says the author, that a homosexual partner can consent, but animals and children cannot, because to them, all of those acts are equally impure. Remember when people implied that it was hypocritical for Jennifer Lawrence to complain about stolen nude photos while also posing nude for a magazine? Same deal. If you grew up hearing that all naked photos are sinful, what difference does it make if the woman consented to the sin? That's, I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, the inverse is is interesting to point out, too, because I think a lot of people would come out and a lot of religious people would come out and say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we know that there's degrees and all this stuff. And it's like, well, not really, because... In Christianity, particularly, and actually, it's true for Judaism as well with Teshuvah. Um, like, you know, what is how do you how do you do restitution? There's no requirement of like any kind of restitution necessarily. Well, I mean, in Levitical law, there's some degree of requirement of, of what restitution looks like based upon um, you know what you did, what you stole, or whatever the case may be. But you know, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, is just that: Thou shalt not steal. And I remember a person asked me when I was religious, when I was much younger. They said, so if I steal a pencil, I'm going to hell. And 
I had to answer yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, and that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, like, that's positively ridiculous. And you can say, okay, well, you can be a little kind about that. All right, so then how do you make up for that? Like, biblically, or under Jesus Christ, or however you want to put it, how do you make up for that? You ask for forgiveness. That's the restitution. That's, like, that's that's the salvation. It's just asking for forgiveness. So regardless of how you feel about the degrees of sin, the the, you know, what the penance needed to be paid is always the same. So really it doesn't matter if you feel there's different degrees of sin because you might as well do the worst one because you don't have to do anything more <laughs> right? than just ask for forgiveness at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what you think about it. Okay. You know, as far as what the degrees are. Right. I mean, and that's such a confusing moral message. Oh, it's, it's fucked up. It's yeah. fucked up. Yeah. I mean, there's no restorative justice there. And like, there's no justice there to just mm-hmm. say to Christ, uh, you know, please forgive me. I, I mean, and it's then like the, a dumb blind set of laws that doesn't have any like gradations yeah. in it or. Yeah. It's yeah, just it, like, okay, blindly follow this code. You know? Right. And then, you know, a Christian will say, well, but then, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is going to compel you, you know, to, to do something to, to restore that person or, you know, to some kind of compensation or something mm-hmm. like that if you really feel forgiveness that it's not that's nowhere in the bible it's not there where do you get that that's ridiculous you know uh, like i mean i get it i think it's a you know in in a, in the christian narrative that's a nice thing to say but that's not a requirement at all mm. uh it's not a part of the faith so i i yeah, that's such a fucking mess. I, I, that's a great, that's a huge nuance. It's point a good to bring point. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's a good point. Okay. And the last one is boys will be boys. Explaining someone's actions, says the author, is obviously not the same thing as accusing, excusing them. Oh, sorry. Explaining someone's actions is obviously not the same as ac- excusing them. Saying that the behavior is shockingly common doesn't excuse it either. The point of this isn't to defend, insert subject of recent scandal here, but to prevent people from insisting that guys like him are rare, incomprehensible monsters. They're not. Lots of guys grope. Lots of guys who don't will masturbate to rape porn. Lots of guys who don't do that still happily masturbated to the stolen fappening pics. Lots of guys who didn't do that still see James Bond movies as wish fulfillment. Lots of guys who don't still see any pro- still don't see any problem with that Han Solo scene until I pointed it out. The writers of all these movies and ad campaigns would say that they didn't invent a damn thing, that males have testosterone and will have certain urges at certain ages, even if they're raised on a desert island. And because the urges are natural, anything that appeals to those urges must be, must and also be, uh, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> and because the urges are natural, anything that appeals to those urges must also be. Boys, after all, will be boys. Oh. Those boys will then grow up and write movies and ads which portray their sexually frustrated adolescent fantasies as if they are everyday reality. But what's the alternative? Censorship? To force women to cover themselves like in Saudi Arabia? No, the alternative is to recognize that ridding guys of toxic attitudes towards women is a monumental task. I've spent two solid decades trying to deprogram myself, to get on board with something that, in retrospect, should be patently obvious to any decent person. Changing actions is the easy part. Changing urges takes years and years. It's the difference between going on a diet and training your body not to get hungry at all. In the meantime, to act like it's crazy that a particular guy doesn't see the clear line between consent and assault is misguided. The culture has intentionally blurred those lines and trained men to feel shame for erring on either side. You have to start teaching kids that consent matters from day one. 
Now let's put this depressing subject aside and enjoy this scene from Ratatouille. In it, a hero forces a kiss with a girl. She pulls out pepper spray to fight him off and then realizes that she loves it. And that's that's a gift. And then he ends the article by saying, we have a long, long way to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Long way to go. Yeah, that's... Uh, Boy, um, I mean, so there was just so much in that article. We'll link to it in the show notes if you want to read the original version. But um, there was just so much there. And I, I think I really I could really see what he was driving at with each of those points. Yeah, no, same here. Um, I, I think like I have some of the issues with the exa- with some issues with the examples, but I wouldn't take a thing away from his bottom line and from his points overall. I think they are all accurate. Mm hmm. Especially the last point about it takes such a long time to rid, for people to root those toxic attitudes out of their mind. Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, because it's so pervasive. Yeah. I mean, oh, I just think of the years of work I did on myself. Yeah. I I definitely held a lot of those beliefs. Growing up, watching movies in our culture, how could you not? Yeah, sure. It's only until you think about them that they start to change. So that's what we're doing here by reading this, hoping that you will maybe think about some of these things and examine what's going on in your own head and if you want to change any of that if you want to deprogram any of the programming that's been installed for you and hope we gave you an entertaining show yes antivirus software for your brain you just heard (laughs) sex and science hour game over play again next week back for the after show but we are so if you listen for this long congratulations we didn't, long are we, in? we didn't announce it we're an hour and 32 in so brian oh brian it's gonna be a short after show tonight yeah we're just gonna we're gonna take it a little bit easy because we did a <laughs> we did a big show there <laughs> well i think we covered a lot of ground i think we did too yeah i think that was uh that was pretty good so um on our after show we talk about <laughs> Well, we, it's kind of a gossip column, you know, for our <laughs> li- uh, spying on our listeners. No, we're not really spying on you. But it is about um, what did people buy through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com, which takes you to our Amazon affiliate link. And from there, when you buy stuff, we get a little commission to support our show and fund our activities here on Sex and Science Hour. Uh, nothing too debaucherous. But I, I'm talking about activities like having a website and, you know, like continuing to spend our time doing the show every week and that kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> and we also get to see what was purchased. So we can't see who bought it. We just see what gets bought. And then we t- use it as a springboard for you know, talking about a little extra stuff, a little extra podcast content during the after show. Yeah, it's a great time. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to keep going. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I I was just kind of stalling a little bit because I was pulling up what was bought. So so we have kind of a short... Let's work out hand signals. Okay, yeah. We need a secret handshake. Just do do this like circular motion with one (laughs) finger. I'll just ask you like to talk. I'll I'll ask you about like, hey Brian. So, what was your favorite Star Trek episode or something? Oh man, see, like you just you say something like that, and we could just go (laughs) right down the line, you know? Yes, we could. So, we actually have a little bit of a short list this week. We didn't have too many shoppers this week, but we still had a few items. The first thing that somebody got 
was a moleskin. By the way, my answer is City on the Edge Forever. Oh, written by my original good, series. Yeah, by my good dear friend Harlan Ellison. So. Oh wow, he wrote one. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, very, I didn't even know that. Oh, it's very controversial. It's uh, Wait, like, why is it controversial? Tell because me because William Shatner changed it on. Like, how did he change like, it? As much Tell, as okay, I now worship, I have to know this. Well, Fuck the after show. Okay. Right, let's talk about this. As much as I worship <laughs> at the altar of the Shat, um, I mean, he, and I do. I love that man. Um, I love Harlan more. But anyway, he, he. So Harlan else, and you can get this. Actually, IDW did a great job of releasing the original version of in a comic book format. It was a four issue little mini series of what City on the Edge of Forever was supposed to be about, and there was like this great kind of like drug storyline underneath where, you know, this guy's dealing drugs on the enterprise, which is really seedy for star Trek. Wow. I yeah. I liked yeah. it. I thought it was cool. Um, scandalous right on. And, uh, Spock had a much more, uh, integral role in, in city on the edge forever uh, by on Harlan Ellison script. Now he wrote a book like 20 years ago. Also that had his original screenplay and he showed where look, William Shatner got pissed off, said, no, no, I'm not a big enough deal in this story. You need to have, you need to give me more lines. You need to do this. And this is the thing with William Shatner. Shat all over him. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is the thing throughout William Shatner's career uh, that, that all the actors would tell you, like, and I've told these stories on some episodes of Sovereign Tech and all that, where I've heard, you know, I've talked to the other actors and I've heard them talk about also where he was, you know, Shatner could be problematic on stage or, you know, on, on set. Um, Anyway, so he was like an attention grabber, like he well, wanted he, he wanted more lines and more glory. And yeah, he wanted to be the big deal. And I mean, and, you know, in his defense, he is that good, like to where, <laughs> you know, he is enough and he did carry everything or he could carry things on his own if you really wanted to. Um, but anyway, so Harlan Ellison, like, I mean, just flipped out, wouldn't work for Gene Roddenberry forever. Wow. Until, um, you know, even though the episode is still fantastic. It, and actually, it, TV Guide, I think, rated as one of the best 50 hours of television of all time, uh, you know, like is in the top 50 hours. And uh, because it's it's just a tremendous story. It's very sad, uh, you know, and, and it has and actually other authors of like books like Diane Duane and others in their books. They 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 did great little um, nods to the to the to the tragic tale. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's I think it's other than like best of both worlds or trouble. um I, it usually gets put at the top for everybody else's list too, mm -hmm. as being the best Star Trek episode. Uh, it, wow! So if you put it at the top of your list, it must really be that genuinely good because you're a contrarian and you would like to pick an underdog. Yeah, normally. I mean, <laughs> yeah. There's so many. Even you know, even though Harlan's script wasn't totally intact, there's so many beautiful moments in that. Like there's there's a point where where uh, the character of Edith Keeler is is describing Kirk and Spock, and it's just this awesome moment where I'm like, this is everything I want out of life because like she's saying. She, you know, she says, you two don't appear who you, because who you, it, it takes place in the 40s. Like, they end up going back in time. It's like, you don't, you two are, don't appear as, as you say you are, you know? And she says, like, she's like, well, who, you know, Spock asks, well, who do you think we are? And she says, you? She looks, she points to Spock. She says, you? You're at his side. As if you've always, as, as if you've always have been and you always will be. And I was just like, man, that description of friendship was just like Aww. so fucking beautiful. And I, and for a while I had a, you know, I had a, like a, a, a guy friend like that, mm. that it was really special to me. In fact, I called him Spock, Aww. um, because I related to him in that way, you know, and then the way she described Kirk was just as great. It's like, you, you belong 
another time somewhere else, you know, and I'm just like, so did that make you Kirk in that equation? Well, I felt that way, you know, you but thought I mean, you were Kirk, a little, a little Jew from New York <laughs> sees a little Jew from Canada, you know, on screen. And of course, you know, Nemo was a Jew too, tall one, but anyway, and I mean, yeah, you relate to that. And I just like, I just thought that was fantastic, you know, and, and, and even the spoiler alert when Edith Keeler dies, you know, after falling in love with, after Kirk and her fall in love and all this, um, which there's plenty of consent, I think, in that in that relationship. Um, and Harlan Ellison is an avowed feminist, so I expect nothing mm. less. Uh, but and anyway, they, you know, like like when she dies, Kirk says nothing. He has to let her die. It is just this incredibly tragic moment, and he says nothing. And the amount of acting that Shatner delivers in saying nothing—that's great acting. You're like like Kurt Russell in Soldier, when you when you deliver everything that's going on. Without saying a word, that's genuine great acting. Yeah, and, and, definitely. And Shatner delivers delivers that there. Anyway, I, I am done talking about Star Trek. Let us move on. Right on. Well, um, you we, asked for it. We only have five. I did ask for it. Thank you. Right. <laughs> I admit it. <laughs> there was consent. There was no violation of consent there. <laughs> so, what do people get through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com? Well, we have a moleskin notebook. Uh, actually, a set of three. It's like a little black book oh, to journal in. I wonder if somebody's been listening to me. Mm-hmm. 3.5 by 5.5. Yeah, so this I have a, a small one. I have a recommendation with those. I'll be okay. quick. Yep. Which is uh, instead of password managers and all these other things, mm-hmm. I recommend keeping all your passwords in a little black book. Yep, just like uh, that. And yeah, they that may way. Have gotten one just for you. Right, because now when, when you know, say, Alphabet Soup organizations raid your home, they actually don't look for paper books anymore. They go right to your electronics. And also, I mean, you know, if you need to, if somebody's really going after it, you can literally grab a lighter and it goes up and smoke. No, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Nobody's bringing that back, baby. That's true. But what if you accidentally lose it or burn it and then, you know, what happens? There's well, no backup. That's why you get small little moleskins because you can keep them. You can you make know. like three copies of it. Well, or that or you can keep them handy. Whatever. I mean. Well, there was a three pack that was purchased through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. Yeah. I mean, you can write in them in some degree of code if you want, like with a cipher. You know, Ooh, that would be extra spy. Right, right. But uh, but yeah, the little black book, I recommend that all the way. All right. Our next thing was Merico Ultra Sharp Premium Heavy Duty Kitchen Shears. All right. So these are like things that you cut up chicken with. Oh, like yeah. that. Okay. Mm-hmm, that kind of scissors. And they're really, uh, they do look quite heavy duty. They come in a nice cardboard box. They're fourteen ninety nine price point. Is that we have the, someone uh, the who Bobbitt likes to model, cook. Or? No, oh. Yeah, the Bobbit model. Oops. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uncut. <laughs> Not uncut. <laughs> Cut. Oh shit. <laughs> Cut it out. <laughs> oh, we have someone who likes to cook in our audience because somebody bought that sushi nef- uh, knife. That sushi nef. Uh, sorry, it's getting late. <laughs> yeah. I'm having trouble talking. That's right. All right, only three more items. So we got the USB home uh, USB flash drive, 10-pack of three gigabyte USB hard drives. And they have like a little swivel case that you can use to protect the... Cover the cap. Yep, to cover the... To put a little Jimmy hat on it, hey. really. And they have a, a 16 gigabyte size as well. These are the eight gigabyte. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's a, I said three gigabyte, but it was USB 3.0. So it's actually 16 gigabytes. Oh, handy. Who would buy a three gigabyte USB stick anymore? Oh, today, yeah. Except for maybe like a party, like a keychain or a party favor. How, how exponentially cheap those got. Oh, I know. Is, it's amazing. Is, it is amazing. In, in like this about was $44 10... for a 10 pack. 
Yeah, I'm going to say like 10 so years like ago. That's $4 each. Yeah. As in literally 2007, those are probably, that would have ran $44 like $44 each. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, to like a, for, yeah for you, a you couldn't gig. even really get a 16 gig thumb drive like that. No, yeah. I my The first the first thumb drive I ever bought was like 128 meg. Yeah. That cost <laughs> me $40. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you could put, put what, like an MP3 on it? <laughs> well, 128 meg. I mean, you, you could fit a couple or maybe an a album. A few MP3s, yeah. maybe an album. Yeah. yeah. And we have the S Rocker um, 2.4 gigahertz wireless mouse, silent click. So this is a silent right. mouse. Maybe this is a person who who wrote my or who read my um my re- my silent mouse review article. Smvoice.info. Smvoice.info. Um, and then we got the Amazon Basics micro USB to USB cable, six feet. Yeah, very handy. Yeah. Oh so wait, like, wait. It's a micro USB to USB. Yeah. So it's is like is it mail? What? Um. Yeah, it's mail oh, to it's mail. Double mail. Okay, double mail. Never mind. All right. It's a gay USB. <laughs> I didn't know if somebody bought that Lenovo yoga book or or what, and they were using it for that. Oh, no, no. I mean, this is just like your standard, like, yeah, like to a charge a phone gotcha. or something yeah, or yeah, to yeah. plug in a phone. Um, and then I knew there was something else. Uh, no, it looks like we looks like we covered everything. So stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. Um, if you want to also help us out and if or express your gratitude to us, if you want to beg for forgiveness for your <laughs> sins from Sex and Science Hour, you can confess your sins to show at sexandsciencehour.com or click the contact form on our website, sexandsciencehour.com. Or you can um, go to stuff.sexandsciencehour.com, go shopping, or you can send us Bitcoin or you can send us a PayPal tip. The info is on our website. Sexandsciencehour.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. We'll be back at you next time. Woo!